Welcome to SignalCast. In this week's episode, first, Signal reporter Fernando Ramirez speaks with Wendy Davis, congressional candidate for District 21, about her victory on Super Tuesday and now running against her Republican opponent, Chip Roy. Then, podcast producer Sara Thakvi talks to Cliff Walker and Obi Rahman from the Texas Democratic Party about the group's new lawsuit on voting rights and this week's primary results. Finally, Signal reporter William Kim and longtime Democratic consultant Keir Murray discuss in detail how Democrats did in the state on Super Tuesday. Thanks so much for joining us on The Signal. Congratulations on your nomination, by the way. Thank you. Very excited about it. Of course. So you now officially have a Republican opponent, Congressman Chip Roy. What can you tell us about his record in Congress so far? I think that what people understand, if they know anything about him at all, is that Chip Roy has evidently gone to Congress to fight for an ideology versus the day-to-day reality of what so many people across his district face and what they need to see someone fighting for um, on their behalf. He has voted against military gold star families, one of only three members of the U.S. House of Representatives to vote to keep an inadvertent tax hike in place um, that happened as a consequence of the tax reform package, where they are now um, paying over a 30% tax on the death benefit of a loved one who's made the ultimate sacrifice for our country. He was the single person who knocked off essentially uh, from the consent calendar a $19 billion disaster relief bill that was long overdue that had been held in the Senate for quite some time um, and had finally come over to the House. And when every other U.S. congressperson stepped up to the responsibility to say, yes, let's move this through, Chip Roy was the single obstacle When it finally came back for a full vote of the U.S. House a few weeks later, he voted against it, even though $4 billion of it was intended for Hurricane Harvey relief here in Texas. He has voted repeatedly with pharmaceutical companies um, and against reining in their power to charge the egregious prices that they're charging right now, and of course has continued to actively participate along with other members um, in the Republican Party to decimate the Affordable Care Act, um, arguing instead uh, that we should go back to a system where the free market reigns and people should be left to that responsibility themselves. And this is all pretty much under a year since since he was elected in 2019, or assumed office, rather. Um, I think some people might be familiar with Roy after a video showing him having kind of an embarrassing meltdown over people criticizing drug company profits went viral. Did you catch that video? And if so, what what was your reaction? I, I did. Um, and it was one of the things that really helped me um, resolve that we needed to make a change there. Um, he, of course, found uh, offense at the fact that Democrats in the U.S. House were pressing on drug companies to answer for 
the runaway profits that they're making while people literally can't afford these life-saving drugs, especially in instances where taxpayers have paid for the very research that created those drugs in the first place. Um, and he showed his true color, um, siding with those pharmaceutical companies, taking great offense to the fact that they'd been questioned as they'd been questioned, and literally said to the pharmaceutical rep sitting at the table, I'm glad you make a lot of money. I hope you make a lot more money. That is not what the people of House District 21 here in Texas deserve. And it is one of the very reasons that I'm fighting to make sure that we fire him from his job. Healthcare and gun safety are some of the most important issues facing Texans. Can you talk about some of your ideas on those two issues and how they differ from Congress, Congressman Roy? I have been fighting to make sure that people in this state have health care for a long time. As a state senator um, and now as a candidate for Congress, I have long argued that we have to address the dramatic crisis in health care that we have here in the state of Texas. We have the highest percentage of uninsured people in the country, highest percentage of uninsured women, and the only state in the country that has a double-digit rate of uninsured children. And it's not only that there are so many individuals and families going without the care that they need here, it's the fact that because we have failed to bring federal dollars back to Texas that are due um, to all of us, we are seeing the highest rate of rural hospital closures in the country. And this is a problem for this district particularly, which includes such a, a large swath of the rural uh, parts of Texas. And my belief is that we have got to respond by making sure that every single person in this state and in, in this country has good basic health care that they can rely on. It's an economic issue, and obviously it's an issue um, that we owe to each of us as humans to make sure that we are taken care of. I think the, the best way, the, the most efficient and quick way to deliver upon that is to build upon where we are right now, allowing people to keep their private insurance if they are happy with it, but to create that competitive driver in the marketplace that was envisioned in the Affordable Care Act's um, uh, original I idea, um, that public option, but very particularly for people here in Texas who are hardworking people who fit within that gap um, that Medicaid expansion was supposed to cover We've got to find a way immediately to allow some kind of a subsidized buy-in to Medicare or some workaround of the U.S. Supreme Court's decision in, in that regard so that we can get them covered here. And then I have to say, I talk to moms and teachers all over this district who are concerned not only about whether our kids are safe when they go to school, um, or play in our community parks, or go to places of worship, or to shop. Um, they're also greatly concerned about the fact that our kids are bearing the trauma of our failure to address this, because now, when they go to school, even from the tiniest ages, they have to be taught how to hide from an active shooter. And I, as a grandmother, feel so um, compelled 
to do something about that. It's infuriating. There's no excuse for it. And meanwhile, Chiproy is voting with the NRA and, you know, happily accepting NRA support for his campaign. I think we have to stand up to them and we have to stand for our children. And I intend to fight with the heart of the grandmother that I am to make sure that we do just that. I wanted to move on and talk a little bit about the latest headlines with the coronavirus. On Monday, Texas confirmed its first positive case of coronavirus. What are your thoughts on how the current administration is handling this so far? We have to see that our government is not going to politicize issues like this, that our first response is going to be that we're going to take full responsibility for acknowledging the problem, putting the resources where they're needed to do something about the problem, and to be very science and medical-based in what our response is going to be. That's not what we've been seeing with the Trump administration, and unfortunately not what we've been seeing from many members um, of, of Congress. In fact, Chip Roy was one of only seven people um, who voted against adding an amendment um, that would have given more money to the CDC some time ago. And obviously, incidents like this help us understand exactly why that funding is so important. Um, we are seeing that not having those resources where they need to be is putting the United States in a position of being much less prepared than we ought to be. Um, and, and, you know, th this is a a crisis in the making. Um, we're already seeing the impact of this disease all over the world. And we owe a responsibility first and foremost to the people that are in the United States to show them uh, that we are going to do everything we can to keep them and their families safe. And I just feel that that's not happening right now as it should be. Absolutely. I want to talk some about the district you're running in. It's been under Republican control for decades, much like Texas, which is kind of a swing state now or is a swing state. Why is your race competitive this year? Well, it was competitive in 2018 as well uh, when Joseph Kopser stepped up and, and ran as the Democrat here coming less than two and a half points um, from winning. So clearly this is a district that's on the verge of turning blue. But I really think the opportunity presents itself uh, again um, in a way that we can succeed in finally pushing it over to the, the blue side of the ledger this cycle, not only because of the expected turnout that we will have in the presidential election, um, and not only because this is a rapidly growing district with a rapidly growing um, population of newly registered voters, but particularly, the reason that this district is going to flip is because people understand what they're getting from Chip Roy and that it's not what they want to see for their families. They know they're getting someone who's not fighting for their health care, who's not fighting to lower their prescription drugs, who's not fighting to keep their kids safe in school, and who isn't fighting to make sure that we deliver to future generations a sustainable planet. Um, these are all, particularly for people like me who have grandchildren now, this feels like such an important responsibility. Um, and I think that is why this district is going to, to turn. 
um, because people understand that what they've been getting from this particular individual and the Republican Party in general is not delivering what they want to see for their families. And similar to that, tell me a little bit about your fundraising. You're currently giving Roy a run for his money. How did you manage that? I'm so grateful for the support that we've received from donors all over the district and all over the state. Uh, we have raised um, a little more than $2.5 million now, um, and I expect that when we file our next campaign finance report, it's going to be very strong. Um, and the good news about that is that we have built those resources one by one, donor by donor, with the vast majority, I think it's somewhere in the neighborhood of 85 to 90% of our donations that are $100 or less. I took the End Citizens United pledge. I am not taking corporate PAC money. I'm not taking any federal uh, registered lobby money. And this is a, a campaign that demonstrates exactly what can happen when people decide that they want to make a change. So I'm super proud of the fact that we're raising the resources we need to, to take this to the finish line successfully and to send Chip Roy home. Uh, fantastic news. And one last question. Should you be elected, uh, could we expect any 13-hour filibusters in Congress? <laughs> well, the rules there, of course, are, are different in the U.S. House. No opportunities for filibusters. But what you can expect is that the people who elect me to serve them are going to have a fighter in their corner every single day. Great. Wendy, thanks so much for your time. And again, congratulations on the nomination. Thank you. So first of all, congrats on the 2 million plus turnout of Democrats in the primary. I mean, how did that even happen? Well, there's a lot of excitement in the state. Uh, voters in Texas, Democrats in Texas are smart. They know uh, that when elections are competitive in the general election, that every single vote matters. And they want to have a say in what the lineup of candidates is going to be this November. So there's a lot of activity here. Uh, it's clear now that presidential campaigns have to come to Texas and court Texas voters. We love that attention. Uh, and we saw voters respond to it in a big way. That plus uh, a lot of uh, competitive elections, competitive primaries down ballot, too. There's just a lot of excitement. People want to run as Democrats, uh, carry the Democratic brand, uh, and Democrats want to have their voices heard. And what's the plan in Texas moving forward to help whoever becomes the presidential nominee? Well, the plan, and, and, and I do want to back up a little bit, right? So Texas is clearly the biggest battleground state in the country. I think there's right. an increasing national consensus that that is the case. Uh, and what that means is that we are going to fight at the presidential level. Those 30 electoral votes are up for grabs. But also, in order to take the gavel away from Mitch McConnell, we're going to win a Senate seat. We're going to expand the congressional majority. We have two districts that uh, will receive a, a lot of investment, our frontline districts. Uh, but also another seven districts are currently being targeted by the DCCC. So uh, that plus the fact that the state house is up for grabs, we must win it. It's a strategic imperative for Democrats in 2020 to flip it. So all of these things are going to contribute to the success of the other. Uh, no one has to bake the cake by themselves. Everyone gets to be the cherry on top, right? There's a significant right. amount of work that's going to be done at every single one of these levels, and that's what's ultimately going to help us flip 
uh, the state for the president, the Democratic presidential nominee. I know you all announced a new lawsuit yesterday to protect voting rights for people of color. Um, Can you provide some more details about it? And what was the reason for this suit? Well, uh, the reason that we filed it is because it's clear that Republicans will do anything at the legislative level to make it a little harder for people to vote and sometimes quite harder for people to vote. That's mm-hmm. their path. Uh, we are believers in expanding the right to vote and making sure that more people have the opportunity to express their opinion and have their voice heard. Uh, and this is just part of a pattern of Republican lawmaking. Uh, Democrats have not always carried the straight ticket vote, but you see over the last couple of election cycles that as uh, demographics have changed, as more and more candidates have stepped up to run, uh, and as Democrats have gotten more excited about our prospects, that more Democrats are participating, and many of them, especially in communities of color, uh, many of our Latino neighborhoods, our African-American neighborhoods, people elect to vote straight ticket. Uh, And it also so happens that many of these uh, communities are in some of our larger urban counties where you may have upwards of 80, if not more, measures on the ballot to consider. So many people are are very comfortable or or confident choosing the vote straight ticket. It wasn't until we saw that Democrats were significantly starting to outperform Republicans on straight ticket voting that Suddenly, Republicans got religion and said, well, we need to, for the good of the republic, eliminate this option that people can choose if they so uh, prefer. So uh, we know that the intent is clear. Uh, it's spelled out in, our, in the lawsuit that we filed jointly with the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee and the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, uh, that we know what the intent behind the law is, uh, that we know what the impact of the law can be. Uh, and uh, we're we're seeking relief from the court to to stop it. And in regards to another big hot topic, which is the coronavirus, what's your take on Trump's competence and crisis management skills when it comes to this virus? Yeah, so I think that's more of a public health crisis. Um, that's something that you know we, we we trust our public health officials, and they'll do what they have to do to make sure that it doesn't. Uh, become a widespread pandemic. Is there anything else that you guys would like to plug or inform the signal audience about? Yeah, um, so Democrats outvoted Republicans, actually, in this election, which I think is huge. Uh, We had about 70,000 more people voting in the Democratic primaries and then the Republican primaries. Uh, It shows Democratic energy. We're ready to win up and down the ballot. And there's never been a better time to be a Texas Democrat. Uh, And then one other thing I'll note, too, is that Next week, uh, we're going to roll out one of our big programmatic pushes. Uh, in the last several months, we rolled out our path to victory on all the various programs that we're going to push out in 2020 to flip the state. Uh, that was uh, in September of last year. Earlier this year, we talked about our voter registration efforts. We recently launched our voter protection efforts. Next week, we're going to start talking about organizing in a much more detailed way. So. Uh, uh, we have our brand new organizing director who is brilliant. A lot more from her next week, uh, and we're going to dive into some of the details of how we're going to get all these voters registered and get all these volunteers recruited, et cetera. Thank you so much. That was great info. Thank you for taking out the time today. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, 
Kier, how are you doing? I'm doing fine. Uh, still trying to take stock of what happened on Tuesday night. Yeah, so let's break that down. So at the presidential election uh, level, we saw some pretty surprising results, um, especially here in Texas. What's your take on that? Well, I think, you know, Texas was not immune to what was one of the more remarkable periods I've seen in my 20 years of working in politics and the sort of transformation of Joe Biden's candidacy after the South Carolina primary um, just a few days before. And, of course, Texas voters will, will know that our early voting period actually ended the Friday before that Saturday South Carolina primary. And what we saw, of course, was that Bernie Sanders had uh, opened a small lead in Texas based on the early voting, but then uh, that turned around on Election Day, and we saw a large percentage of the vote happen on Election Day, more than half. And, uh, of course, Joe Biden overtook him and ended up winning the state by about four and a half points. And uh, let's talk about turnout numbers, which are going to be very important, uh, not just in the primaries, but also in the general election. Um, what was your take on voter turnout and on Super Tuesday? It was good. It was up substantially for Democrats from 2016, where we had about 1.4 million or so vote in 2016. And it looks like we're going to end up around 2.1 million Democrats uh, in the 2020 Democratic primary. Um, so a good increase there. Not quite the explosive turnout we saw in the 2008 historic primary between Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton, but still very robust. And it looks like uh, Democrats in Texas narrowly outvoted Republicans in the primary who are right now look like just above two million. So uh, I, I think pretty good sign potentially for the fall there. And uh, take it down to the congressional level where the Democrats want to flip even more seats uh, in 2020. What are the key congressional races that you're looking at? Well, I think we've got about a half dozen of them that where Democrats are challenging to pick up re Republican seats. I think, of course, we've got to the 7th and the 31st congressional districts represented by Lizzie Fletcher and Colin Allred, respectively, where the Democrats will have defense for new freshman members who uh, won in 2018. But then you start going down the list, probably top on that is the 23rd congressional district, which goes from the San Antonio suburbs out along the border into West Texas, has been represented by Will Hurd, who opted not to run for re-election. believe there's a runoff in the Republican primary on that side. But uh, the challenger from 2018, Gina Ortiz-Jones, uh, is running again and, and won uh, her primary without a runoff and will have a matchup again against whoever the Republicans nominate there. I think that's a the percentages say that should be a Democratic seat. It came very close to being that in 2018. So I think, you know, that probably tops the list. Um, there are others the 21st Congressional District in Central Texas, formerly represented by Lamar Smith, currently represented by Chip Roy, a sort of Ted Cruz protege, and former state senator and gubernatorial candidate Wendy Davis won her primary there, which will be a marquee challenge, I think, in the state this fall. We've got other races in the Houston area, the 22nd Congressional District, where Pete Olson retired. Uh, Sri Kulkarni will be the Democratic nominee there, taking a second run at this district after running pretty close in 2018. There's a runoff on the Republican side to determine the nominee there. The 10th Congressional District, Michael McCall, there will be a runoff to Austin Democrats. Uh, Pratesh Gandhi and Mike Siegel will be running for the Democratic nomination there to face off against McCall. The 24th, Kenny Marchant's old district, which he vacated. Uh, Kim Olson and Candace Valenzuela are in a runoff on the Democratic side there. 
and um, and and the thirty first uh, congressional district, John Carter, which MJ Hager made a strong run for in twenty eighteen. We've got two Democrats in the runoff there running for that nomination. And uh, also another thing that the Democrats are looking to flip is the state house. Um, can you go through some of the districts that there that? Uh, and some of the primaries that we're looking at on that level. Well, um, don't want to get too much in the weeds here, but we did have some competitive primaries there in the Houston area. You had Dwayne Bohack's seat. Uh, Bohack, the Republican representative, retired after winning by just you know 40 votes or so in 2018. Um, Governor Abbott's candidate, Lacey Hull, won the Republican nomination there. We have a runoff here between a, a lawyer named Akila Bailey, uh, Bailey and Basie, excuse me, and uh, a Jennifer Renee Poole will be in a runoff on the Democratic side there. We have other seats in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, um, a couple more in Houston, one in Corpus Christi, uh, one in Central Texas, the clean Fort Hood area. Um, all of these are going to be worth watching in the fall. I don't want to go through an exhaustive list, but um, a few runoffs there, but mostly the nominees have been decided in, on the Democratic side for those House districts. And I'm sure we'll be discussing all of those uh, going forward. And so uh, one other race going on in Texas uh, is the uh, Senate race. And we didn't even know who the uh, brought, who the second person in the runoff was going to be until pretty late that night. Or I think it might have even been the next day. So can you talk a little bit about that race? Sure. You know, we had a dozen uh, challengers file to run against John Cornyn this fall. Um, former congressional candidate candidate MJ Hagar led the field with about 22% of the vote. And then it was sort of a log jam after that among four or five other candidates for that second runoff spot, but ended up being taken by State Senator Royce West from, I think, from Dallas and largely on the strength of his performance in the Dallas-Fort Worth area where he's pretty well known and I think did some advertising. Uh, he narrowly edged out um, Austin labor activist Christina Sinsun Ramirez for the that second spot in the runoff, which will occur on May 26th. Um, Emily's List quickly endorsed Hagar in the runoff there. Uh, not surprising, given you have a, a woman uh, running against a male candidate in the runoff, and that'll be interesting to see how that shapes up um, and what kind of turnout the, that race is at, able to produce in May. It is a marquee statewide contest, but historically these runoffs are pretty low turnout affairs. We may go from, you know, 2.1 million voters down to three or 400,000 statewide in the runoff. And so whoever's able to sort of mobilize a base to come back out uh, for that May 26th runoff election uh, will we'll get the prize to oppose John Cornyn in November, who continues to look pretty vulnerable according, according to most polling that we've seen. Finally, just switching back to uh, presidential level, do you see this as something where Biden pretty much has the nomination in the bag? I mean, it's Warren has also dropped out. Bloomberg has also dropped out. Is there a possibility, though, that we could see a, a Bernie resurgence in the same way that Biden had been counted out for a while? Sure, it's it's possible. But, um, you know, my own sense is that Biden's in a pretty strong position going forward. A lot of people thought that Super Tuesday set up very well for Bernie Sanders. He was expected to come out of, of that uh, day where 14 states were on the ballot with a, a pretty handy 
uh, d delegate lead. That has not materialized. Of course, California's ballots, which slowly come in by mail, are still being counted, and most people think Sanders will have an advantage. Many have declared that state for him already, but it's not going to be the kind of advantage it doesn't look like that he was hoping for. And Biden was able to come back and win a number of states on Super Tuesday, including a couple in Maine and Massachusetts, uh, where he probably was not expected to do so. Um, so, uh, you know, Biden looks like he's got a modest delegate lead now. Uh, we've got states, co uh, primaries coming up in Mississippi and Michigan and Florida in the near term. Um, those potentially also set up pretty well for Biden. But, you know, Bernie still can turn it around, but the, the time is growing short. And, uh, you know, it looks to me like the, the likelihood of a contested convention is dwindling fast. I think we're going to get uh, a nominee who gets a majority of the delegates uh, prior to the convention, which I think is probably a good thing for the party, trying to get everybody together uh, before the November election, regardless of who ends up being the nominee. Thank you for listening to The Texas Signal. The podcast was edited by Sara Thugvi. To find out more about who we are and what we do, please visit our website at thetexassignal.com.